You're listening to The Blaze Radio Network on demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The most powerful tool we have is our brain. But to access that power, we need to know how to use it properly. In this episode, I interview Peter Brown, author of Make It Stick, a book about how great people learn. Based on the latest research, you will see that most of us are learning wrong. We talk about Marines, football coaches, and surgeons as we discover a new way to use our minds. If you're a student in school or in life, you don't want to miss this. Delving into current events to uncover relevant wisdom. wisdom. This is the Charlie Harari Show with Charlie Harari on the Blaze Radio Network. Everybody, welcome to the show. We've got a great guest for you today. Peter Brown is with us. Peter Brown is a management consultant, a man who's been all over the world, and a man who has written multiple books, four or five books he's up to um, in his lifetime, which is an amazing feat. The last one, um, Make It Stick, uh, has really taken the world by storm, especially the world of learning by storm um, in terms of how you could get information and learn information. He's an amazing individual. I'm so happy that he agreed to join us in the show. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here, Charlie. So when did you start writing, if I can ask? You know, uh, I've, I've always been a writer one way or another, uh, but uh, writing, uh, uh, for writing's sake, I, I dedicated myself to um, around 1998 or so. I retired from my most active consulting client. Uh, my wife and I went to live in Italy. We had a, we had a uh, uh, five-year list uh, what do people call that list now? Things you want to bucket do before list. you die. Yeah, bucket list. We so we said, well, let's not do it before we. Let's just say five years. And one of them was to live in another country for a year. So we shelved our professional lives and went and lived in Italy. And I spent uh, a year. Uh, pedaling around uh, Tuscany on my bicycle and thinking about my life and myself and meeting people and learning a new language. And that's when I started writing. So you, you, you're, you've done something that I think a lot of people dream about, and I want to delve into it a little before we get into your books, is you're working a high-powered life as a management consultant. You're probably flying around. You're probably meeting with tons of people. You're engulfed in the business world, if you will. And then you say, you know what? I want to do something different. And you just take the year off and you try to find yourself. Is that the, Was that the process? Well, yeah, you make it sound easy. And I just had to confess, it sounds idyllic to take a year off and find yourself, you know, wake up one morning in January in a farmhouse in Tuscany. Uh, but it, it was difficult psychologically for me because I was attuned to uh, 
the affirmations that come with work, with working with people, doing something that pleases people, listening carefully to, to what they're talking about and concerned about and how I might contribute to that. And here I was needing to listen to myself. And I, I, I really didn't, hadn't cultivated that skill. That's, that, that's something that I think is really important to sort of think through for, for at least for me personally and for our listeners, which is the idea that you start your life as a kid and then you're on a treadmill and you just go and you're always trying to hit an, a, a certain target that the, the world sets for you and you got to get good grades. And then if you do, your parents come in and teach your parent, teacher guys and they go, oh, I love my little kid. And then if you don't, they call them in and there's a problem with you. And then, <laughs> you, you know, they just sort of push you through the system. You know what I'm saying? And then you get to this high All school, right. junior high school, then in college and you get a job and, then, and you're just like, just you're just, you're just growing. You're just climbing ladders, climbing ladders, climbing ladders. And I think many people have this little voice in the back of their head that says, hey, if you just stop for a little bit, if you just took a little right. bit of time, you know, you'd find something amazing that's inside that you, you just just calm it down. Just turn off the phone. Just stop trying to climb the ladder. And when you speak to someone that did it, um, it's, it's, it's encouraging that it's possible. What was that moment that you, you, you took the time off? You're, you're in Italy. What did you find, so to speak? I, know, I don't want to make it sound, you know, to upper Bob, what did you find that was different from where your life was going until then? Well, one of the things about Italy is it's full of this remarkable, inspiring art. And you look at the artworks and you say, how was someone uh, so in command of their creative impulse and their sensibilities to be able to produce this kind of art? I remember one day I was biking up a foggy dirt road and ahead of me in the fog, this, there was a big beast that rose up in the fog and I couldn't figure out. I heard voices, sort of frightening. And I pedaled on and it was some guy who had a horse uh, on a halter and he was getting it to rear. And uh, that was sort of like an instant metaphor for me that somewhere through the fog is my passion. But uh, I have focused so much on trying to be pleasing to clients and find my way, as you were just describing, uh, through the, the career, if you will, that I hadn't really done that exploring. So I think this notion of taking the time and getting on whatever the bike is for any individual and just exploring and following your curiosity and going down the narrowest lanes and seeing what opens up and how you respond to that is a way to become a little more, uh, a little better acquainted with your own passions and interests if they aren't already uh, fully embodied in what you're doing in your work. Yeah, it's, that's a great point. And even the way you just said it, I think is a nice metaphor for people because at least I find when you live in, in, a, in a high-paced environment, you have to almost find your purpose like by the weekend. You know, you're like, okay, I'm taking, <laughs> I'm taking the week off. By the time I get back, I want to make sure I've been able to, you know, finish the novel, find my purpose, change the, you know, like, okay, and then I got to make sure I, that fits back into my in my rat race. And I think what you're saying here, which is which is, which is a very in, important insight, is that in many ways it doesn't you, you can't find it when you decide to find it it you find it when you sort of follow these narrow sort of paths and you let your curiosity lead you and you you give it some time and whether that's in Italy or even in your life and you know you can be finding your path in the middle of you know Times Square in New York City the 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 decision if you will to sort of Find your curiosity, travel, you know, the, the paths that you want to go down and, and, and try it out. I think what you're saying is really what you need to do to find your own voice. You have to become a noticer uh, of the smallest things and uh, 
then have a little inquiry about yourself. Well, what is it about that that caught your eye? Why do you like that? What, what does that suggest to you about what you might be interested in? So I, I do think you can do it anywhere. But I did find myself curious, why was I a noticer in Italy? In every village, I wanted to look in every shop and find out what everybody did. And I would ask myself, well, why don't you do that at home in St. Paul? You just breeze by all these places, but you don't have any curiosity about what they are and who's in them. Mm. It was interesting for me to see this contrast in myself. So what were you saying, and I'd like to delve it, you saying that the curiosity leads you to new things, but once you're at these new things, it's the curiosity to go deeper that is the indicator of wh whether or not it's your passion. Well, I don't know if that's true, but I do believe that there's that self-awareness uh, is a cultivated skill and that uh, it involves turning down some lanes that, that might be uncomfortable or might feel slightly invasive uh, in finding what you find. And turn, by turning down lanes, it might be uh, something you do with a, a psychotherapist or it might be something you do on a bicycle. But the notion of going into some areas that you think of, A, a you haven't noticed before and never would have turned down because you're so busy getting from point A to point B, or uh, there are areas that are intriguing that you haven't felt comfortable exploring. And right. when you do you and you uh, welcome some of the discomfort, you get some uh, discoveries about yourself yeah. from that. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, especially as people grapple with discomfort. Um, it's, it's important as – and we're going to talk about this in a couple of minutes as we, as we delve into your book – um, the idea of discomfort and how some people run from it and would rather um, intoxicate or distract um, or live vicariously than than sort of grapple with discomfort, which is yeah, and get comfortable impact. with discomfort. <laughs> right. Seems like okay, right, you know, exactly. Moron, but there is something about learning to be comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty. Yeah. So when you started writing, what is? Do you have a a process for writing? Do you have like, you know, every day you write 10 pages or you just sit down at a computer? What is your natural process of writing? I, I'm still learning that. I think my, the big thing for me is I have to get started. Uh, I, if I sit around and wait for the story or the chapter to present itself to me, it never happens. Once I start writing, even if it's uh, clumsy and awkward and maybe ill-conceived, my mind starts knitting at it and starts presenting me with ideas. So the, the one of the critical things for me, if it's a book, it's chapter by chapter. Every chapter takes me a long time to get started because I fear I'm not on the right track. But once I get started, I get on the right track. And by the time I get to the end of that chapter, I feel elated. And then I have this deep <laughs> sinking feeling because there's another chapter to be written and I don't have any idea how I'm going to deal with it. So it's a very up and down thing for me. But I've learned enough about myself to know that once I've started, once my mind is engaged in the project, it works at it, even when I'm doing something else. And that's where my creativity begins to burble up and uh, I can move on forward. So that's a really important thing thing for me is to be comfortable with a lousy beginning, but to get the beginning begun yeah. uh, so that then I can make it better and find my way. I, I, was, I was reading about one author, I forgot who it was, who had written a whole bunch of bestsellers, and he said something similar. He said that what he does is he writes the whole book, and he writes it in a version that no one can see it. Like, it's only for himself. Sure. So it could be garbage. Mm -hmm. He just needs to get through it because... Right. 
it does because sometimes you're writing going, oh, no one's going to read this. But if your if your mentality is, I don't care, no one's supposed to read this. That just gets it on the page, and right. then now that starts the game. Right. And I yeah. think a lot of people aren't writing. I think the for for all those people that do write books, there's all the, there's a lot of people that are saying, I'd like to write something, an article, a book, whatever, and I can't exactly for the problem that you just raised because it's not all figured out yet, and who's going to read it, and I think what you're saying, and for those that are listening that have, have ever thought to write something, you know, the way real writers do it, like yourself, is you start writing. And as you're writing, it all presents itself. Yeah, every writer is different. But for me, the inner critic is extremely powerful. And I have to find some way to put the inner critic aside and get the process going. So uh, I, uh, I, when I first started writing short stories, or first started writing fiction, I, I went to uh, an organization in the Twin Cities called the Writer's Loft, and I took some beginning fiction writing classes, and then I started writing short stories. The reason I picked short stories is because I knew I was going to make a lot of mistakes, and I didn't want to make them over the you know, the, right, the months novels. or years it takes to write a novel. <laughs> I wanted to make the, my mistakes, learn from them, and then go write another story and make different mistakes so that I could begin to move forward. And that, that was a very free way of writing, and uh, it was very beneficial for me to to approach it from that standpoint. One of my problems is when I end up with a success and I try to get to the next project, my critic is back on my shoulder again saying, well, that was good. I bet you can't do that again. Right, right. You know? <laughs> and it's harder then to, to yeah. get back at it, but uh, eventually I can. Yeah, that's that's really great. Let's jump into your book. Um, you have this great book, I read it. It's unbelievable. It's called Make Make It Stick. Um, and what what it's it's a book about learning and your brain and your mind and what inspired you to write a book like this? Why was this the book you chose? Uh, well, uh, first and foremost, uh, this is a book that I co-wrote with uh, Henry Rodiger and Mark McDaniel at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. They're uh, preeminent cognitive psychologists with a specialty in learning and memory. And uh, Rodiger, uh, whom we call Roddy, is my brother-in-law. I was between projects. I'd uh, written my historical novel, it did very well, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I was chatting with Roddy about my work and his work. And he was telling me about the research that he and uh, some of his colleagues, professional colleagues at different universities have been doing into the question, what teaching and studying strategies lead to better memory of the learned materials? And the answer is uh, not what we expect. S turns out most of us go about learning something in the wrong way. So as soon as he started telling me that and going into some of the body of the research, I got excited about it. And I thought, this is something that we all need to know. And it'd be better if it weren't written uh, just as a, a scholarly scientific paper. It'd be better if it were written in a more accessible way. So that's how he and I and his associate Mark teamed up uh, my role was to understand uh, the research that they and their colleagues and others in the field had done well enough to describe it in lay language and illustrate it through storytelling of real people, incidents in their lives where they had come upon something complex and managed to master it and how they happened to do that and how what they did illustrates what the science says is an effective way to learn. That's a long answer to your question, but uh, it's important for our listeners to understand that um, the research is a very large body of empirical evidence and my role wasn't in the research, but my role was in learning Presentation. it. Yeah, right. So let's jump right in. So the, the, the key, the way, the way I took from it is the key um, 
aspect of, of what, what you have to understand is that learning is largely misunderstood, right? There is a, yep. the way we see learning growing up is you sit down, you highlight, you memorize, you make yourself some memory cards, you go to the test, but that's actually not learning. So what is, what is learning and how can we understand it better? Well, the interesting thing about learning is that, first of all, learning requires memory. Memory is fundamental. Uh, if you can't remember uh, the thing that you were trying to learn, then you haven't really retained it. So uh, the research shows that we tend to focus on trying to get new knowledge or skills into the brain. And what is far more effective is work at trying to get it out of the brain. So let's just take a very simple example. Suppose you've read a newspaper article and um, you want to describe the key ideas to somebody later. Uh, you might read it two or three times, uh, but by dinner time, uh, you're going to have a hard time describing it unless you've quizzed yourself after you read it. What were the ideas? What was it about this article that impressed me that makes me want to describe it to Charlie at a later date. This effort to retrieve it from memory actually consolidates the learning better, connects it to what you already know, helps you um, articulate it in your own way and give it meaning. So learning is far more effective and sticks better if you uh, engage in a variety of habits that in involve retrieving new knowledge from memory as opposed to rereading and review. Right. And it's interesting as you say it because everybody knows if you, if you have to prepare for a speech, it's not just that you memorize it again. You've got to talk it to yourself. You've got to get it into yourself. It's got to be something that is in a way, the, the knowledge has to become a part of yourself. It's almost like the integration of that knowledge into your own life versus just the just the memorization of it. Exactly right. You have to understand the concepts, the underlying concepts. You have to understand how they relate to what you already know. It's, it's a, a given in learning. In order to learn something new, you have to have a foundation that that attaches to, a foundation of knowledge. And so uh, it turns out when you're first exposed to some new skill or knowledge, it's uh, loosely uh, organized in your in one part of your brain, the hippocampus, and over a period of hours or maybe a day, uh, the brain uh, makes it um, cohesive, fills in gaps, and moves it into other parts of the brain. It's called consolidation, where it's connected to things you already know. And this process of consolidation, uh, as I say, it takes time, and it is the process by which the brain tries to make salient the most important aspects of this new knowledge or skill. When later you try to retrieve this knowledge or skill by practicing it, and it feels difficult, it becomes uh, sort of fluid again, and the brain reconsolidates it, and it connects it more firmly in the, in the long-term memory. It makes the salient points more prominent. It makes the pathways to find that knowledge stronger. So this notion of retrieving memory or practicing something after some time when it's difficult uh, and it doesn't feel effective is actually better embedding the knowledge in the brain and strengthening the pathways to pull it up again later. So this actually flies in the face of the way most students study, which is cramming, right? This is a, yeah. this this sort of says cramming material, which is probably why, like, if you give me a periodic table, I have no idea what it even is. I try to find water <laughs> because I had no idea until like, you know, 24 hours before the, you know, the, the, the chemistry final or whatever, my 10th grade year. But 
what you're saying is the people that are out there going, hey, I'm going to learn the information by cramming, they're actually not working with the way their brain really works. The best right. way to, to learn something is to be able to give it spacing, to time it, to, right. to let things come in at, at different moments and let that information sort of like fill the gaps, if you will. It's, ra yeah, it's rather striking in the, in the studies if when they do these studies and they have people uh, who – are exposed to, let's say, a chapter from Scientific American about sea otters or just some subject like that. And you have some uh, people uh, who will read that six or eight times uh, and other people who will read it maybe two times. And those who have read it only two times uh, are quizzed on it a couple of times. Uh, then you wait a week and you see how well did any of these people learn it. Those who have read it six or eight times, you would think would do really well. And it turns out they've lost it. it. They've forgotten it. That's the cramming mode. It mm -hmm. doesn't stick. But those who've read it once or twice and been quizzed on it and have practiced retrieving it from memory remember it very well. You sort of interrupt this forgetting process, which is endemic to being human. I mean, forgetting wow. is the human condition. Right. And you mentioned this, Aristotle, I mean, I think it was in the book, Aristotle said that the way you actually are able to increase your information and memory is by that retrieval. You have to pull it up. You have to pull it right. up. You have to use it. Tell, right. tell me about, you have a concept about mixing it up, about how it can't just be sort of one way. And if I remember, there was a, a football coach in there, um, a, right? Is Vince that, Dooley. Yeah. yeah so, Vince Dooley of the Georgia Bulldogs. Tell, me, tell us that story. Coach, great record. Well, you know, I mean, I talked in writing this book, I talked to Jet pilots, you know, how's it gone for you? How do you learn? What instance can you give me a neurosurgeon from the Mayo Clinic? Many different people, a young uh, Marine who jumped out of airplanes and described her experience at jump school. Well, I wanted to talk to somebody in football and my wife were, and I were in Athens, Georgia, and I um, got a connection to Vince Dooley and he agreed to sit down. And I, I, I don't know too much about football. I'm embarrassed to admit it. And I told Vince that I don't know too much about football, but how do you get your team from one Saturday game to the next? And he proceeded to lay out a practice regimen, which could have come right out of the research uh, materials. And, and, and it lined up beautifully with what the Mayo uh, clinic neurosurgeon does, how he uses reflection and, and, and practice and different tools to uh, refine his technique. So in the, the notion with uh, Vince Dooley and these others is that you want to uh, space out your practice. So time, uh, okay, there's a time lapse between efforts, whether it's sports and athletics or whether it's some kind of an academic subject. You don't want to do it over and over and over again because you're just practicing in short-term memory. It doesn't help you consolidate in long-term memory. So you want to you want time to uh, uh, elapse between practice sessions. The other thing is, if you mix up the practice of related but different things so that when you encounter, let's say it's uh, solving, um, finding the volume of a wedge and uh, finding the volume of a spheroid and finding the volume of a cone. If you switch between those problems, each time you encounter one, you have to ask yourself, let's see, what is the formula for finding the volume of a cone? And then you have to apply it. Whereas if you practice 15 cones or hitting 15 fastballs or you know whatever the thing is you're practicing before you go to the next one, you're just doing it over and over again. And the learning is, it isn't very effective, but when you go between them, it's ragged mm -hmm. and it's frustrating and you don't think you're getting it. Later, 
when called upon in a test or out on the field, football field to, to perform, you're much better at discerning what is the problem you're facing and what is the solution you're going to apply. You get a much more complex representation of that knowledge in your brain and a better ability to transfer that skill or that knowledge to an unfamiliar setting. So so like a football practice throughout the week would consist of high doses of effort followed by doses of rest followed by mix-up of, of practices so this way they don't feel like they're just doing one thing. Yeah, the, they'll, uh, the position coaches will, will uh, practice uh, each position. Uh, then they'll run uh, plays uh, as a team. They'll run them fast and they'll run them slow. Then they'll talk about adjustments. If the opposition were to do this, what's our, what are we going to do? And uh, so through the week, they're speeding it up and slowing it down. And then they're intermixing some of their fundamentals, uh, you know, their kicking game or their passing game. Some of the things that are critical uh, skills they've got to have, they'll mix that in there so that during the week you are you're, it's not a predictable everything over and over again. Mm. It's mixed up. And um, mm. when the individual players are practicing their playbook, they're doing the same thing. They might be back at home uh, and going through uh, mentally rehearsing the plays. As Vince says, they might tilt here or, or faint there, but not run through them because you can't spend all that energy. But the mental rehearsal of them uh, mixed in with all the rest of this is a very powerful way of building mastery. So how does that work with, the, if I can jump into the, to the neurosurgeon, does he do the same thing? He practices surgery one way, he rests, he reads journals. He His week also consists of mixing well, up his game? It mixes up his game because he has different patients with different kinds of problems. And this particular uh, neurosurgeon, uh, Dr. Michael Ebersold, that I spoke with, um, he told me a great story about being called into the emergency room with a, a hunter who had been found unconscious in a cornfield with blood at the back of his head. And it turned out the guy had um, been struck by a spent slug that someone had fired in the air. It just had unfortunately come down and hit him in the back of the skull and gone into his skull. And so the doctor's looking at this guy and he's there's some brain tissue protruding and he's thinking, I know at that particular point in the skull is very likely that he's... Uh, damaged uh, soft tissue venous sinus that drains blood from the brain. And over his years of experience in doing that kind of surgery, he's had to figure out a way to close off that tissue. And it's kind of flat, size of your little finger. And if you just put a stitch around it, it breaks and leaks and you're in big trouble. And so he's had to invent a way of uh, he brings tissue in from the incision and and stitches this sinus to it, kind of like a cork, and is able to plug it off. And he's invented that technique, which uh, you have to be able to do very quickly because the blood is just gushing out. And his method for learning that was a, a process of doing surgeries and then after surgery, reflecting on what happened, how did it go, how might he do it differently next time, and mentally rehearsing maybe a little bigger stitch or different technique. And so the next time he goes in, he's had the benefit of having thought that through and rehearsed mentally uh, some techniques to improve his performance. And in this manner, he's invented this technique, which he said isn't taught anywhere, uh, but is highly effective for him. And in the case of this hunter, it saved a guy's life. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just a great example of how practice and and mental rehearsal and what what the researchers call generation coming up with solutions to problems before being taught the solutions uh, builds effective mastery. 
it's so interesting. As I'm hearing you say, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this is so contrary to how most of learning takes place. The idea of, even the, the last thing you said about generation before you get the answer, like we're all taught that there is one answer and it's in the back of the book and don't look until the test is over. You don't know. <laughs> the whole goal of testing is to make sure that you can figure out, no, 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 don't figure it on your own. You got to get what's in my head. And yeah. the idea that we go to the same class, you know, every day at the same time, you go to the same job, you're, you're, you're not, your, your times of break take place on weekends. You're, you're, you don't mentally rehearse because who has a moment to mentally it feels in a way like this is a like a secret for great people that the rest of us just don't have the time to learn so we're in a way not leveraging our brain and so you're stuck in this mode where we can't be the best that we can be yeah, Charlie, I think you're right. And I had the benefit of going to people who are highly successful and finding an incident and having them describe to me what brought you to this point where you could do this thing and having them describe, and they haven't read the research on learning, but describe their habits, habits of mind. And uh, lo and behold, these highly successful people are using the techniques that the research are showing us are highly effective. So at the Guthrie Theater, I talked to a guy who's an understudy who goes on stage at the last minute and plays the lead role. How does he learn that? And what he described to me was right out of the research on learning of how you begin to master this material. So, yeah, I think that it is not intuitive. Um, we think that we're about putting the learning in instead of pulling it out. And the people who um, make it a habit regularly, periodically, very low stakes of re recalling something important from memory or even trying to solve the problem before being taught and then being taught how to do it and then practicing it periodically. Those people do very well. Uh, it's not intuitive. Uh, there are at the physics department at Washington University in St. Louis now, uh, I'm told, uh, assign students to try solving problems before they come to the class where they're taught how to solve them. And I've heard that there's some pushback by students who say, well, you know, uh, this isn't how it's supposed to work. I right. go to the class, you teach me how to do it. Right. Well, and you can kind of pick any subject. Uh, if you um, poll your brain, quiz yourself, what is this like that I already know? Could it be this? Could it be that? And you struggle with it a little bit. Then when you're taught how, it seems that the connections to what you already know are sort of ready to be made. Yeah. It, it turns out to be a very effective way to learn. Even if you've made mistakes in, the, you know, in your efforts to try to solve it, as long as you get the corrective feedback and you learn how to do it, you know, you're showing how to do it, the learning is far better than if you just walk into a class and someone says, now we're going to learn how to do this or do right. that. Which is a way how we open the show with your the writing style, which is not waiting for it to all be laid out for you, but to get into it. And then when you're into it, you can get to an interesting point. You know, it's interesting. This is, is a transition. One other point you made in your book that I liked a lot was the idea of difficulty. You know, we live a life where many times we're trying to avoid difficulty, avoid pain, avoid mental uh, fatigue. Um, and you seem to say that it's actually hurting us, that when you make these sort of short-term moves to make it easier for you, you know, you study to this point, when, you, when we try to sort of clean and, and, and neaten everything up so that our studying is as easy as possible, it, in fact, we're hurting our learning because… Yeah, it doesn't stick. 
Right. It's, so talk to me a little bit about um, how I think the word is desirable difficulties that right. are things that you're doing to make it harder because making it harder helps you. There are some difficulties that slow learning down that make it stick better. Spacing out your retrieval practice, mixing up the practice of of several things at the, you know, at the same time, interleaving them, mixing them up instead of practicing one thing uh, over and over before practicing another. Uh, this notion of uh, generation of trying to solve problems before being taught how. Uh, elaboration where if you encounter something new, you, you pause and you take the time. Um, a medical student, for example, reviewing slides. Well, where is this in the body? What do I know that's similar to this? How, does this? how is this similar to something else I've already learned? Elaborating on that new knowledge. All those techniques tend to be slower than, say, the typical cramming way or rereading something, highlighting and underlining it and putting it aside. They slow it down, but they make it far more effective. And that's what makes them to be designated desirable as difficulties. Right. Well, there's a story in the book that you, I'd love to talk about, about a, a, a Marine, right? Uh, a in parachute training where right. like, um, Mia, she had jumped and she she was in a she jumped on someone's parachute. What, what yeah. happened? <laughs> Mia, Mia Blondetto. She, she's really, really great. Um, she'd been uh, uh, assigned, uh, got a post, offered a post to be in charge of logistics. Uh, and she was in Okinawa. And uh, to be in charge of logistics, you had to... Um, you had to go to flight school. And she was not really interested in jumping out of airplanes. She told me, I'm not afraid of heights, uh, but I don't like the feeling. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure, you know, what the I difference is. I don't is, like hitting the ground from the heights. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the heights to find the way they are. Just don't put me on the top of them. <laughs> but she said, you know, it was a real honor to be uh, offered this posting. So she looked at, at her boss and said, yes, sir, I'll jump out of airplanes. So she, go, she went to Fort Benning Jump School. And jump school is several weeks, and uh, you are not allowed at jump school to have a pencil and paper, a, a book, or anything to write notes on. The way you learn is by doing. And so you start out uh, in the first day in jump school. Uh, you have to pass some rigorous physical uh, fitness uh, tests in order to be admitted and stay. But in learning how to jump out of airplanes, you start where you're just standing there and the instructor says, I'm going to show you the different ways of falling to spread the impact over different planes of your body. So it's demonstrated and then you're expected to fall on the ground in, in the ways that, that do that. And then the next day, you know, you're standing a foot or two off the ground. You're going to fall into sand. And it, the whole jump school experience is like this. And it gets actually quite complex because you have to be uh, comfortable with uh, various aspects of jump, uh, jumping, you know, being in a harness, swinging in a harness, falling from a harness, uh, lining up with other jumpers uh, in a mock-up plane, some on the right, some on the left, jump out. And so, and there's issues when you jump about if there's a wind or not, if you're jumping into trees or over water or all these variables. And you have to learn how to deal with these variables, not by reading books and writing notes. And uh, so Mia was describing how, and I don't remember if it was her first jump uh, or second jump, but early in her experience of jumping out of the plane she jumped she 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 was the second jumper the first jumper went and then there's i don't know three or four seconds and then you jump and then the other one jumps and she found herself 
landing in this guy's parachute. You don't have any control in the beginning. You're tumbling and counting. And if your static line doesn't open your chute, then you know you have to pull the ripcord. Well, her static line opened, and she, but she fell in this parachute. So I said, well, what did you do? Oh, she said, I just sort of swam out of it. And it was fine. It was no problem. Well, it was no problem because of the rigor of this uh, training regimen that involved them in all these different complex maneuvers. And what was really interesting to me was if you want to be a smoke jumper, they don't want you from military jump school because the smoke jumping protocols are very different from the military jump school protocols. And you have to unlearn the one in order to learn the other. You, you create this complex mental model when you go to jump school and it's different for smoke jumpers. So that tells us something about learning and, the, and the, uh, how practice helps us build these complex mental models that become second nature to us, like yeah. driving a stick shift car through heavy traffic. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost as I'm hearing you say it, as if, if learning is just for times where everything is supposed to be perfect, then you can learn it in any which way. But if you're going to ever learn something and then apply it to a situation that is not currently in your mind, then you need to learn it in a complex way, right? Which is, could right. be why we get thrown, why... You have schooling where you can just go years after years just repeating back information because you'll never really need or you don't know if you'll ever need uh, or you'll assume that you never need like, you know, history or the stuff that you're taking. Um, and, and you can be sitting in a job for five years saying, hey, listen, like it's going to be the same job. And the only way you can actually be prepared from what I'm hearing you say for when it goes bad, when things get messed up, when there's uh, a complication is when that learning shifts. And I wonder if there's a correlation, if you found, between people that have had difficulties in traditional education and the ability to be innovative in a, in a, in a, in a changing marketplace. Because they had, to learn how to, they had to learn how to get information in ways that are non-traditional, which only serve them when the market shifts, when the market turns. Right. I, I, I can't speak to an empirical study uh, in particular, although I uh, the the research into learning does show that when you mix up your practice and then you encounter a problem in an unfamiliar setting later, you're able to transfer that learning to the unfamiliar setting. Yeah. Well, this makes sense. I don't think that's hard to understand. Um, Carol Dweck, uh, the Stanford uh, psychologist, has done tremendous work in this area of uh, understanding that uh, we as individual humans have a lot of influence over our intellectual capacities uh, and that um, striving to surpass our current ability in any field uh, to the point where we encounter failure and then looking at the failure as a door uh, to a different way of trying to solve a problem and welcoming the notion of failure as information uh, helps people um, build much more complex and advanced mental models and skill sets versus those of us who think that our intellectual abilities are set at birth by our genes and who define our our success by whether we solve the problem uh, or whether we fail at it. And those who think their intellectual abilities are fixed uh, tend not to pick challenges they might fail at because that would seem to, to impugn their abilities. Whereas those who believe that our intellectual abilities uh, are 
uh, fluid that we can in increase them uh, tend to pick ever increasing uh, challenges, more difficulty and learn from doing. And so I think what you were touching on there about how entrepreneurs or other people out in the fray build this more complex body of skill in a in um, um, resiliency, if you will, and the ability to take learning from one field and apply it in a new field uh, are people who are familiar with failure and recovery from failure by trying different techniques or trying a little harder. That's a very powerful learning model. So if you take that notion that we, through effort and experience surpassing our abilities, in other words, failing, improve our abilities, and you couple that with a way, what we learn now about how learning works, that generation and practice are much more powerful than, than listening to a lecture or reading a chapter. Uh, you can see why some people go much further and, and have a much richer uh, uh, scope of skill uh, because they've embraced that kind of uh, learning model, if you will. Yeah, it almost reminds me of the research that's been done on neuroplasticity <laughs> and how um, information is being really seen as connections between neurons and how the more you can make those connections, the better and stronger that information becomes inside you. And it's interesting the way it's, you're, you're, you're expressing, which is it's really it's, 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 it's amazing how if you think about it, if it comes down to the interconnections of neurons, the more um, diverse those connections can be, the more they'll withstand, you know, time and, and, and challenges. The more the more vary the, the connections around the, that bit of information you have in your mind, the more you could apply it to different scenarios to get out of trouble. But I would even, even go, and I'm sure you've said this as well, is to actually apply a new way of looking at a current model, to, right. to look at a regular problem and go, hey, wait a second. Um, uh, we could. Why don't we try it this way? Hey, why don't we put mm -hmm. the phone and attach it to the MP3 player and then put the <laughs> camera in it? Like, why does <laughs> exactly. it all go together? And they go, "What? That's never been there before." We go, "Yeah, yeah, I got that." But like, why not? You know what I'm saying? And, and isn't that how a lot of the great innovation happens? Is this you know enhancing of a common product by drawing a connection that wasn't been drawn before? Right, and not afraid, not being afraid to be messy about it. Uh, I was looking online at uh, teachers and professors and who was talking about the research that's been done. And I came across a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, uh, scientist, uh, Mary Pat Wenderoth. And I went out and interviewed her because she was talking about this very stuff. She will be lecturing to her class on a topic. And then she'll pause and she'll ask the students a question related to what she was lecturing on. And they'll turn to their notes. And Dr. Winteroth says, put your notes aside. Imagine your mind is a forest and the answer is in there somewhere. The more times you make a path to find it, the stronger that path will be. And that is like turning on a light bulb for these students. The notion that going and finding yourself makes it easier to find again later. And it's much better than looking it up. Now, imagine that you're trying to find that from many different places in the forest. Mm -hmm. And imagine... I think of it like being in a strange city. You know, the more ways you find to get to the little grocery store or the museum you're interested in from different places, you get uh, suddenly a way of thinking about routes and connections and paths that are much more sophisticated than, I don't know, ordering something delivered or whatever you want to call it. So this, this idea of coming at knowledge and skill from many different directions 
creating a more complex mental model and uh, and a easier way of finding it again later or applying it in unfamiliar situations holds up very well in the research. Mm-hmm. And that's that's great. And and as you see yourself and everyone who's listening who may not be in college or or university, or when you see yourself as a lifelong learner, you're you're able to bring in diverse experiences to make a very uh, unique tapestry, if you will, of information. That it's not just like, hey, um, I've got my job and I that's the silo of my job. And then I got my hobbies and the silo of my hobbies and I got my family. You actually could sort of, if you see it that way, you know, like you said, create these different paths for how information can surround. Um, around you. Last, I mean, I know that I uh, I appreciate your time here. Talk to me a little bit about Michael Young and how he was able to change the way he studied to really launch him in medical school. Michael Young uh, had graduated from a college with a master's degree in psychology, and he was working in a drug clinic. And he was working alongside doctors, and he got to feeling like he maybe he had missed his calling. He wished he'd been a doctor. And so he decided to go back to school to try to get a medical degree and become a doctor. Uh, he uh, took some courses uh, and managed to pass the MCAT and get accepted at Georgia Regents University. He was working very hard, as all medical students are. And um, getting in, getting accepted was just a huge achievement for him in his mind. And uh, but when he got his first midterm back, it was like a 70 or something. He just wasn't cutting it. And he he thought, wow, <laughs> if I'm going to make it, I've got to find a better way to use my time because I don't have any more time. And I don't want just anybody's opinion on how to study. I want to know if there's any empirical research. So he went in and looked at the empirical research. He came across the work of, of uh, Roddy Rodiger, and he sent him some emails saying, you know, I need to bring up my grades in medical school. And you say I should uh, do retrieval practice and I should space it out. And I've got all these huge slides in every class and I just have some questions. So he asked Roddy a few questions. They emailed back and forth and and that was it. And so three or four years later, I was working on this book with Roddy and I said, I'd really like to talk to a medical student because they have to learn so much. And he said, well, why don't you see if you can find Michael Young? Well, I found Michael Young at Georgia Regents. And by the end of his first year, Michael, uh, by doing this spaced practice retrieval, spaced retrieval practice from the slides and doing elaboration and the kinds of things we've been talking about here, he brought himself up to the top tier of his medical school class, and he wow. stayed there. Uh, it was in his third year when I talked to him. He's still at the top tier, and his professors were having him tutor other students. And the other medical students couldn't get enough of it because of the sheer pressure they have to master this stuff. And he, one of the real revealing things for me when I talked to him was when you pause – trying to memorize this stuff and you cover up the bottom half of the slide because you can't memorize the whole slide, it, it takes time. And you're thinking, man, I got a test next Thursday. Am I ever going to get through it? He said, I didn't have another way to do it. So I stuck with it and it paid off. But it is not intuitive. And the doing, it doesn't feel like it's going to pay off. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the issues. Uh, and he's he's just a great example of how trusting it and leaning into it and doing it um, pays a rich dividend. Mm-hmm. Amazing, and and I think that if we and like everything in life, I think you know greatness is is may not be common knowledge because if it was if it was common knowledge, it would be common. <laughs> and one of the things that I think what you're getting at and what's in your book, and for those of you who are listening, check it out. Make it stick. The science of successful learning. You can get it every anywhere. I mean, I've got it on Amazon. Anyone, um, it's available with Peter Peter C. Brown. 
um, and a whole bunch of other people as well that, that, that Peter spoke about. Um, and I think the point really is that when you see your mind as a tool that you can use and grow and mix up and tr- practice and train versus this, I got to get the information out because I got to get the grade or I got to get it. When you're able to value your mind and the information in front of you, you can really accomplish so much more um, than if you see yourself as fixed, as you see yourself as a part of a system, as, as if you just try to get through it versus try to be creative with it. Um, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time. I know that whoever's going to listen to this is really going to learn a lot, and, and I, I appreciate the time, and I appreciate the uh, the advice um, and the experience. Charlie, I really appreciate your interest in it and the chance to chat with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is The Charlie Harari Show with Charlie Harari on the Blaze Radio Network.